Welcome to the Survive HR Podcast. This podcast is designed to keep you up to date on all things human resources and sometimes life. Brought to you by two co-hosts who rarely agree on anything. We promise an insightful time filled with a bit of education and a lot of laughs. Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to 2022, the first episode of Survive HR. My name is Kelly Shive. I'm joined here by Steve Nail. Hi, Kelly. Happy New Year. Okay, in full transparency, we've already recorded this episode once and we messed it up. So we've already done this whole like meet and greet thing. So Happy New Year, Steve. Let's introduce our guest because no one really wants to hear about us. Well, I think we've got Chris and Perry with us today, and that's a great way to start off 2022. I mean, you know, yeah. people get tired of hearing us pontificate. So they, you know, some of our most popular shows are when we have Chris and Perry on. So it's good to have you. And we're going to talk about the great resignation a little bit more today. It's the only ones I hear Happy people talking They're on. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. Glad to be here. I noticed, Perry, they don't invite us in December when they're all jolly and everything's fun. They bring us on in January. We're to all the boring lawyers. Well, we'll be recording another podcast with y'all real, real soon because big things are happening today at the Supreme Court that are going to impact employers, I'm sure. Hey, Kelly. Uh, Kelly, what? with the resignations, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about resignations and some things, you know, when people resign, when they come back, that sort of thing. But, you know, you got to think about it this way. We have a I think there were four, according to Sherm last month or something like that, was 4.5 million people resigned. And I think in December, I think that's the, it was either November or December. But November, it was, uh, November, yeah, November, November 4,527,000. I'm looking at their cool chart. Sorry. Okay. So yeah. that's, that's a lot of people. And I know we saw that in like, uh, I think it was maybe August or sometime. There was another month where it hit like four and a half million. And there's, so there's lots of people that are complaining about that. And that every time you hire a new person, Kelly, aren't you so happy to get that new person? So you're ha- somebody, look at this thing. 4.5 million HR people are really unhappy because they've lost 4.5 million people, but other HR people are very happy because they've gained 4.5 million people. So, you know, it's kind of a, kind of 50-50. I was going to say, like, someone's trash is someone's treasure, but referring to people as trash is <laughs> like, I didn't, yeah, I didn't say that, because that's not what I meant, it was just kind of what pops into my head, but listen, this is the reality, is HR is busy, we're operating at, like, a trillion miles an hour, and all of us are, um, and um, there are things that I'm convinced people miss as it relates to HR legal implications when people resign. But then once they resign, I mean, those people resigning are going somewhere, right? So when they resign, they're going somewhere and your you're, chances are you're hiring a bunch of them. And when you hire them, there are things you have to think about too that I'm convinced HR people miss quite often. So we are, we're gonna do this with Chris and Perry the right way with our lawyers who keep us out of trouble. Chris and Perry, what are your thoughts on this? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. So I'll I'll start. I think with uh, all the people that that are quitting. So so what are the things that you need to be thinking about with all of the workers leaving? And I think the first thing is is making sure that you've got a, a sort of exit interview um, checklist in in place. If you aren't doing exit interviews um, or at least have some kind of you know process, I, I think 
first of all, it's obviously important to determine uh, the reasons that an individual is leaving so that you can um, improve on that uh, in the future as, as part of your retention strategy. But from a legal perspective, I think the most important thing is to identify any post-employment obligations that that worker may have to the company once they leave. So I'm thinking about things like non-compete agreements. If that person is moving to another company within the industry, um, thinking about um, confidentiality of proprietary business information and making sure the workers understand those obligations, um, you know, any non-disparagement obligations so they don't uh, take to social media to uh, badmouth the company and former coworkers. Those are things that can be discussed in a an exit interview. Um, it's also generally a, a best practice to follow up with some kind of written reminder or written communication to the uh, former employee saying, you know, hey, this is just a reminder that you signed an employment agreement on, on this date or you agreed to, you know, the following confidentiality obligations or the following non-solicitation obligations so that you have on record the fact that you've, you know, put that person on notice of, of those obligations in case the, the worker goes out and violates them. Well, how I, often are they violated? And like, like, this is just a dumb question. Like, how often are they violated and someone actually does something about it? Oh, uh, that, that happens pretty good bit. That really does. Employers get very upset about that. And, you know, that is actually one of the areas where, you know, as a, as an employment litigator, Perry and I'll always tell employers, you're usually, well, rarely are you not as an employer to disadvantage in front of a jury, because more often the jury is populated by folks who were employees, not managers, supervisors, owners, and they all have a beef with their one of their employers in the past, and they tend to align more with the um, plaintiff. But in a situation where an employee has stolen um, an employer's information, um, especially, you know, and this is not true in all situations, but when they've done this, they they are the, the playing field is a little more even. And I would dare to say that juries don't like it when employees take what is truly and fairly the employers um, and take it, leave employment and go and compete with them. Well, on the, on the, the one thing that he said, uh, Perry said is about non-disparagement. And I'm assuming Perry, and this might be, you know, a lot of that what we're talking about could also be on the inverse when you hire somebody, but yes, you don't want clearly a company and organization doesn't want to be disparaged by an ex-employee, but I'm, do you put that into, an employment agreement into a non-solicitation, non-compete, whatever you want to call it, um, agreement that you may have at the point of employment? Because if you don't, it seems to me that if you don't do it at some point during the employment relationship, you can't do that as they go out the door. That's, that, that's exactly right. That needs to be done in an employment agreement or a non-compete agreement or, you know, maybe even in an employee handbook or something like that, that, that the person signs as a condition when they're hired. Uh, the only exception to that may be if 
if there's some type of separation agreement that's that's done with the worker um, when they when they leave in exchange for you know severance compensation or or something like that. And you know one one other thing to keep in mind with non-disparagements is that you know some worker bad mouthing I, I will call it um, on social media can be protected under under law um, under the National Labor Relations Act if it's something like complaints about working conditions or, or, or pay or things like that. Um, and so that, that's one thing to, to keep in mind that it's, that, that one can be a little bit fraught with sort of, you know, workers' rights under that law. So you do have to be careful there. Are, are your clients, Chris and Perry, are, you, are they finding, I would think that if you, you're having, one of the big issues would be with this much turnover, that people are actually then soliciting your other employees to come work for their new companies. I would think that would be yeah, one of yeah, the practical yeah. issues. Okay, so is what would you recommend if if anything, you know, to on the front end or the back end to help uh, minimize that issue? Well, so you know, you can have your employees when you hire them or with additional consideration if they're already hired, sign non-competition non or non-solicitation and non-disclosure agreements. Um, those are fraught with legal issues, which I think most employers know. There's a bunch of different laws that apply to that. That, that issue is always controlled by state law. State law varies from state to state. A state in this instance often will apply its own state's laws if the agreement is written under laws that are more advantageous to the employer um, the state will say that violates our public policy, we're going to apply our law. And the other thing is that's one area where they apply their rulings retroactively, um, even though that wasn't the rule um, at the time the agreement was written to interpret agreements. Um, but aside from that, if an employer um, is careful about how they use these agreements and they don't require everybody to sign a non-compete and non-solicit, um, you know, you, you think about a receptionist, we don't need to, or, or even a CFO, we don't need them to not have a competition agreement. We, if we're a business that's in the business of something and we have a CFO, do we really need to restrict, restrict the CFO from going working somewhere else? Or do we just need to have that person tied to a strong non-disclosure agreement? And if that person has access to our clients and any pull to our clients, then maybe also non-solicit. And then there's also geographic time duration and scope um, requirements. Yeah, I think, I think you've, you've made a, I mean, you, you really hit a very important point that I think the listeners need to, to really think about. And that is most companies, you know, kind of go into, um, you know, we're going to have whatever level of employee or however they distinguish. It could be all employees, but usually at certain levels and above sign non-compete agreements. And a non-compete agreement is, is in today's world very questionable uh, in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but and you mentioned the receptionist, and I think that's interesting because you, obviously you wouldn't think about having a receptionist sign a non-compete agreement. There would be no reason to do that. However, if you think about a receptionist, a receptionist would know every single person in the organization and what they do. And if she, he or she left and went to another employer they would have they would be one of the best resources to get other people out of your company 
So a non while a non-compete wouldn't necessarily be important, perhaps for a reception, a non-solicitation agreement may be. Yes, I, that is a fabulous point, Steve, fabulous. So when I said non-solicit, you know, I was obviously talking about your customers, clients, et cetera, but there also is a provision, a non-solicitation provision for um, rating your workforce. And you're absolutely right that um, the receptionist, it might be appropriate to have a non-disclosure where um, you can't keep the identity of employees separate. I mean, uh, confidential, that's not confidential information. Right. So a non-disclosure and then a non-solicitation um, in that agreement, that's, that is an excellent point. Um, and another thing to keep in mind about these agreements um, is, for example, the person who knows the secret recipe of the Coke, we've got to non-compete them. Um, but we still have that limited to a certain amount of time. And it's, and it's limited to what their duties were for you. Um, so, you know, all of these requirements for a, an agreement to be enforceable. And I'll tell you, even today, I worked on another one for, for a large company, well-resourced, that um, was missing some compliance nets that, that would get the agreement kicked out in South Carolina. Um, if they hadn't had us review it. And so I would say that this is an area where it's absolutely imperative that you get legal review and you get it frequently. You know, I know this has probably happened to Perry too, but you see agreements that um, we might've written some time ago um, or some, some fashion of that and they've been taken and edited and changed and you get them back from a client and the client says, you know, when you tell them there's a, an enforcement issue with it, well, you wrote it, your firm wrote it. And then you ask, well, when was that? And it's been years, 15 years, and they've also added stuff to it. You know, so it's, this is an area where you've got to stay, you know, stay current. That's at least an annual thing, I would think. Well, an annual thing, an annual check-in with the lawyer is good enough, probably. So, okay. We don't want people to leave. We understand they leave. And we have to be mindful of all of the things that they can possibly take with them, including people, which is a problem. We're also hiring at ridiculously fast rates. I love hiring. I think hiring is the coolest thing in the entire world. But we often are very quick to bring people on board. And in a job market that's very tight, we tend to overlook some things that I don't think HR folks should overlook. What are some of those things, Chris and Perry? What are some of the speed traps we should be watching out for? Well, I think to what we just talked about, you know, one thing is making sure that you've got a contingency plan in place if, if, if they do leave. So all of those post-employment obligations, you know, think about what you've actually, what you're actually having them sign at hire, whether that's an employment agreement or some type of restrictive covenant agreement, those types of things. Um, you also, you know, hiring at such a rapid pace, you sort of be cautioned against, you know, relaxing your rules around, you know, pre-employment drug screening and background checks and, and things like that. That can get you into some liability issues down the road if you relax those because you're hiring so quickly. Um, and then one thing I think which is on everybody's mind is, you know, what do we do about compensation? Um, and is there a way that we can increase compensation that, that's being offered to, to new applicants? Um, and what will that mean for our current workforce who's in those 
same positions where we're going to have to raise the pay for everyone. Um, if we start raising pay very quickly, you know, what, what's it going to look like when we try to reduce pay if we need to? So you got to be careful with, with, with compensation and particularly thinking about what the impact will be on the rest of your workforce um, and potentially creating pay equity issues if you're hiring people on it, you know, at, because of the market at, you know, higher price, higher rates than your current workforce. I think that that's actually one of the biggest, like, it's the most important thing that I think has been said today. Not that everything you haven't said, everything Steve said was terrible, but Chris and Perry, you guys are always, um, but I, people will forget that because in a tight labor market, you're desperate to make job offers and you generally, like maybe you have a vacancy that you desperately need to fill. So you're far looser with the purse strings because you have felt the pain of not having that human um, and, or, in, or that role or whatever it is in play. So I do, and, and the wage issues will come back and bite HR professionals if you don't pay attention to how you're impacting internal equity every day. Well, well, to your point, Kelly, I mean, it's not only, I mean, the HR people don't want to fill the positions, but the hiring managers are demanding that you fill the positions. And even if HR, I think in many cases says, wait a minute, this doesn't fit our pay range. This is not, you know, this is a compensation issue. They're still going to get pressure to look, just, just do it. We need the person and we'll worry about it later. And then later doesn't come. And I think you know, it's just like people can't, you can't find wage surveys that are up to date because the wage structures for jobs are changing so quickly. So you just throw all that out the window. And I mean, I think, and I'll ask throw the question to Chris and Perry, but it seems to me that this may basically means the companies have to constantly monitor and have a plan. And, and the reason HR doesn't necessarily control, I mean, they don't, you know, they don't control the budget, the finance department, the board, whoever's approved it. But I mean, now's the time you've got to be kind of flexible. Otherwise, you could find yourself in a lot of difficulty with potential legal issues, not only wage and hour, but uh, discrimination issues, you know, based upon various protected classes, just because you've you've basically the market has required you to up your up the starting salaries uh, larger than you would have otherwise. But that's not an excuse in the law. No, that's right, Steve. And um, you, you get that and you also get a situation where an employee is advising um, the decision maker, um, I'm leaving and going to another employer. And that decision maker decides that the decision maker's got to do what the decision maker needs and just ups the salary right there without really telling anybody. That happens a lot. And then they come back and they say, this is what I've promised. Um, and you're making a great point. And I'll tell you, you know, I see a lot of censuses um, and there's thing, things like that jump out. And, you know, a lot of times it has a pattern that would weigh into the discrimination um, or pay equity issue that you mentioned, and whether it's intentional or not, right? It's, it's probably not intentional, but it's glaring and you can't argue with a census that's on an Excel sheet. Um, so, the companies that I think that do that the best have a deliberate analysis that they do where they look at the market and they determine what the appropriate ranges are for the positions that they have in their market. 
And they decide how much of that are we going to pay? You know, some of them say, we're going to always make sure we're at 75% of that. And those are established ranges. And those are communicated to the people who would be inclined to throw out money. And maybe even also explain to them the risks, you know, the ones that you just mentioned. Um, and, you know, the other risk associated with that, that if you make it right, what's that going to do to the bottom line? That ought to get everybody's attention too. Um, and see if that won't help stay in those ranges more. Because at least if there's ranges and you've got somebody at the top of the range, you can say, here's a range. Um, and then the other thing, just as a cleanup method, an audit method that HR annually just needs to be looking at their, um, their census and doing the analysis so that um, they can at least identify the areas that might be problematic um, and explore you know, what is the justification for this person being paid more than, than another person? What are the criteria, this sort of thing, and determine whether that's actually legitimate and that would be sufficient to, to survive a discriminatory um, pay equity issue or if um, it does not and therefore something needs to happen. Well, it, Chris, is this, I was going to, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, just kind of top of mind fall. So I'm going to ask the two experts on here. Um, let's say... I'm looking for you know the needle in the haystack person. It's hard enough to find them anyway. I finally find one, and they are you know twenty five percent above my range or something, and I hire them out of desperation. But then I say, okay, I'm red circling this rate, you know. So this will this was not going to change until you you know until the range catches up with you. Is that a defense or not? I think it is. I think you tell that to the employee so that you're managing their expectations. You know, I had a client um, who asked me a question. They had hired someone that was male at substantially higher salary than the female that they hired um, later in the year. And their need was very, very high at the time that they needed to hire this person. Um, and it was not as high when they hired the second person. You know, and I, th I think there's things like that and, you know, then other criteria. One was bilingual and that was helpful with the employee population. The other wasn't. Um, and then he, he also raised the female that was hired in the summer. And this was a female who was fine with her salary, incidentally. He raised her. He didn't raise her to the male, um, but he raised her to get her closer. Um, you know, so every, it's not everybody has, everybody's dealt the same, you know, it has to be the same salary or whatever. You just have to be able to offer legitimate non-discriminatory business reasons for your actions. And so, yes, I think that would be a defense. Are you seeing, um, and one of the, another thought that I have as I think about this, which you, I've never seen anything written about it or anybody talk about it, but, you know, you, you, if you, let's say you are hiring in people and you're bringing them in high, you, I think you could, I mean, it would be possible, I believe, to then have a class action by folks over 40 or 50 or whatever, but the, an older generation of people that have been there very long. So as a class, just of, you know, protected, you know, age group, not so not necessarily male or female or, or any racial, racial or ethnic minority or anything like that, but just based upon age. And that could be a serious uh, issue, I think, if, if I'm right in my thinking. How did this become a compensation podcast? Well, I don't know. 
<laughs> well, because I don't think it needs to be. There's a lot of other things we can talk about, but that's a really good point, Steve. Yeah. Just like any other group that's um, protected. And it's, I, I'll, I will say it's not just, you know, it's not just pay. I mean, alternative benefits, I, I've seen it with remote work. Most applicants now are requesting remote work. Um, and a lot of companies don't sort of have a remote work policy that allows all their current employees to, to work remotely. And so people are being hired into positions that are being granted remote or flex status. Um, and that changes the dynamics for your current workforce that that's to be the same way. Really interesting. You're right. Like you're so right. Like that's really interesting. And you know, right. that does dovetail into, you know, you could offer a package that that's not necessarily higher. You could, you, maybe you could, you don't have to jump ranges. Maybe there's different buckets of things that you can do. Um, depending on what the person needs. And if you could point to a practice where you did different buckets of things, depending on what the person needs, and you were able to point to that was across the board of whatever, male, female, older, younger, disabled, not disabled, African-American, Caucasian, et cetera, you get my point, then that also would be helpful, you know, I think as a defense. But are you know, you I had some... Uh, are you, I was going to ask you, are you, you know, it is interesting because I know you can actually, there are companies that are actually paying, you know, they, they develop compensation plans where they're paying people less to be, um, you know, if they're remote, because obviously you don't have to travel to work, you may not have to have the same clothing requirements, whatever, whatever this situation. I want to know what companies are getting away with paying people less in this market for remote work. Uh, I have actually heard of, I've actually heard yeah, of, one company yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it okay, he is, Perry has seen it as well, but the point it might be the same company, because I don't know what job market y'all are working <laughs> in, because that's, <laughs> but the point, the point I was, a point I was asking though, and, and I was asking Chris about is, are you, are you taught, because it's a not, it's kind of an interesting idea is you, instead of like a, a cafeteria plan of benefits, there's a, it's a, almost a cafeteria of compensation. So, you know, working from home is, is, you know, is worth X and, you know, at various, you know, whether you, you know, you can take it different ways. I've never, that'd be very complex. And as far as looking at values and trying to defend the case, but I could actually see where you almost have a, a cafeteria plan of compensation related programs that people choose from that fit and match that reach a total uh that and that fits their their situation better than you know than than it would somebody else's necessarily i think it's an interesting idea and you could put benefits in there too you could it could be like an a, a la carte menu it's an interesting idea yeah, i'd love to touch yeah i'd love to touch on a couple of things that um i see happen when folks are leaving and if you think about the great resignation folks are leaving quickly hr's got a lot of pressure on them, what are you going to do about um, these this retention issue that we're having, right? You know, and so you got to bring in more people. And um, besides, obviously, to Perry's good point, do the exit interview and really follow up on what you need to follow up on before you bring somebody else in to have them leave again. You know, is there something with a supervisor, something with a practice, a policy, um, something with other employees, something with the workforce? Um, you know, climate that needs to be addressed, certainly do that. But some, some little nits that I see 
um, an employee doesn't turn in property and employers still routinely want to deduct from pay or they want to withhold a paycheck, you know, the South Carolina Payment of Wage Act, and, and there are payment of wage acts all through um, the nation and, and every state, and they all have different criteria, you know, different provisions in them. But um, presumably that's, there's an equivalent in the other ones. You've got to make sure that any sort of withholdings you do from an employee's final pay have to be something the employee agreed to in writing and signed, and it has to have the amount. And you know, no employee on the way out is going to say, yep, you can withhold it. Let me sign that for you. They're going to say, no way, Jose. So you have to, um, at the outset, when you issue the laptop, um, when you issue the phone, have them sign for company property, have the value of the company property itemized that they've signed for, and, and they sign under a statement that says the employee agrees that if the employee fails to return the company property at the end of employment, that the, the, the employer may deduct those amounts um, above from employee's final pay. So that's, that's, a, that's a NIT. Um, another NIT is tuition, training, and relocation. Here are opportunities, you know, you can encourage folks to stay a certain amount of time if you've invested some money in them up front by having them sign um, repayment agreements if they leave before a certain time. And you can do it um, on a graduated form fashion. So we paid this much to send you to special training or, you know, helped you get your degree tuition repayment um, plan. And if it's a lot of money, maybe you can even spread it over two years and you would base it on percentages after the first year would be 100%, um, you know, 16 months would be 75% and so on. Um, same with um, training. Although, you know, obviously if training is only a couple thousand dollars, you would evaluate how long you were going to spread it out. Relocation bonuses, all those sorts of things. And then as far as a bonus bonus, another way to keep folks there a little bit longer is have a written bonus plan that says you don't earn the bonus until it's paid so that they have to stay at least through the time the bonus is paid rather than having to be paid pro rata the value of the bonus um, through the year, which in South Carolina, unless you have that in writing, you do have to pay somebody pro rata. Let's say they have commissions of work that they've brought in. If they've done the work, whether the, even if the commission hasn't come in yet, they're entitled to it unless you have a written plan that spells all that out. So those are those are some things that I see that are low-hanging fruit that sometimes get missed. I feel like there should be a checklist. Have we talked about that before, Chris? So many times you've asked so us for checklists. Times. And there's been times I'm like, yeah, yeah, we should do a checklist. And then I'll do a checklist. Well, thank you guys. There's obviously 10 trillion speed traps with losing people and hiring people that you have to think about. And I think a lot of the things we mentioned today are just things that don't, that slip minds when you're moving quickly. So thank you, Chris and Perry. I feel like you and I are going to be talking very, very soon on the OSHA ETS. And we'll be doing a podcast on that next. But thank you, thank you, thank you very much for being on this podcast and kicking off 22 the right way. Yeah, and thank you for sponsoring us as well. Boy, we couldn't do it without you. Thanks a bunch, Chris and Perry. Thanks, Thanks for having everybody. us. Happy New Year. If you like our podcast, please rate us and share our podcast. Our hope is to help this already busy community of business leaders learn a little while laughing along the way.